Good morning, my friends. Are you well? <clears throat> Probably not. There's a lot of sickness going on. Hang in there. At this time in the service, I'd like to invite you all to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is revealed to us in the scriptures. If you're new to this group or you have a really bad memory, Crossroads Bible Church loves to study the Bible. We love God's word. We love pursuing him through his word to find uh, direction, to find discernment, to find uh, the, the narrow path that leads to life. Where we've been the last few months is in the book of Revelation, and we've finally come to a close for that. So some of us were thinking as we're praying and discerning about what text to study next, we thought, man, Revelation's been kind of thick. It's been sometimes kind of confusing. So let's take, a, let's take a season of eight weeks and just study one chapter in the Bible, give everybody a break, and study in the book of Leviticus. And I know how it feels. I mean, the, the January read-through starts. You're in Genesis. It's a great story of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob, Joseph in Egypt. And then you get into Exodus, and it's the saga with Moses and, uh, and, and saving everybody from Egypt. And then you get to Leviticus, and it's like, okay, well, uh, what's going on here? Let's just skip to, you know, strange fire. Okay, got it. And, uh, and, I, and I sympathize with that. Well, we're going to be studying a chapter in Leviticus, uh, chapter 23. Leviticus is a book given to the people of Israel in the wilderness, and it's a book of purity. The rabbis used to say that the children should study Leviticus first because children are pure, and so they should learn about God's purity. Leviticus 23 is a section that talks about the feasts of God. There are seven annual feasts and one weekly rhythm that's brought to our attention here. And you'll notice as we study, each of these feasts uh, have the appearance of being a small text. Not like reading three or four chapters like we were in Revelation. Read a few verses, but what happens is this opens up a, a, a big story and a big theme. Which is what I'm going to do today. Why are we studying this in eight weeks? Well, we're on the precipice of a liturgical uh, season. Does anybody know what happens this week? What starts this week? On Wednesday, it start, we start Lent. Did anybody grow up observing Lent? Has this been a part of your life for a very long time? Yes, of course. I did not grow up observing Lent. However... I did grow up religiously observing Fat Tuesday. <laughs> Can I get an amen for the poonchki? I love, a, I love the nine o'clock service. You think I'm the funniest person. None of the, none of the other services laugh at my jokes. They look at me like a 14-year-old girl looks at her dad. You know, they're like, okay, you're not funny anymore. You think... <laughs> Lent is not about just saying no to yourself, you know? I know that there's a perception of Lent that this is just New Year's resolution part two. This is just the person that couldn't stop eating candy when they made their New Year's resolution. Now they get a second chance. 
We all know that guy. It's like, get a grip, man. This is not about that. It's not about proving to yourself that you can do this 40-day fast or, or whatever you choose to make it. Lent is not as much about saying no as it is about saying yes. Lent is about saying yes. And we know that every time you say yes, you say no. We're saying yes to Christ. And when you say yes to Christ, that inevitably leads to saying no to other things. And we have to discern, when I say yes to Christ, and I'm trying to, and to, to find Christ at the center of my life, that means other things are gonna have to be bumped to the side and pushed to the side. That means you say yes to Christ, it's inevitably gonna, inevitably gonna be saying no to another comfort or another thing that might be weaseling its way into the center of your life. This is Lent. Lent is like the season in between Thanksgiving and Christmas where you're, 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 there's all these things around you preparing you for Christmas. And thank goodness for that. You know you have the Christmas carols. Everywhere I go, there's silver bells. You know, you have the, the, the lights on everybody's houses. You have the, uh, the candy can. You have the office Christmas party, the, the secret Santa, the white elephant, all of these things preparing you for Christmas. And good thing that we have that. Or else some of us might forget to buy Christmas presents until Christmas Eve. I guess I should have said that differently. Some of us do, even with all the help that Christmas gives us, forget to buy Christmas presents until Christmas Eve. But think about this for Easter. This 40 days leading up to the greatest a celebration of the greatest act of redemption in the world's history. You will not get any help from Christmas carols to celebrate this. You will not get any help from our culture to, to cause you to think and remember the cross of Christ. Our world doesn't want you to have the cross on the center of your minds. Our world doesn't want you to have the cross at the center of your hearts and to say no to other comforts and desires. Our world doesn't want that to happen for you. You're not gonna get any help. So if you're like me, and you still have a ways to go before you can say that you have the most Christ-centered lifestyle, then join me this Lent and start figuring out how we can continue to put the cross at the center of our lives. And that section of the sermon is called, Yes to Jesus, No to Punchki. <laughs> Please turn to Leviticus chapter 23, and I'm going to, uh, to read the first three verses. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Okay, I did it. I forgot the announcement. The slide was up there, but I get going into Lent. We're going to do the feast. We're going to do a feast. That's what that slide was trying to say. There, we, there it is. No, March 22nd. And what it really is, is it's a, it's a grace, because there's no way that Crossroads could study the feast of God for eight weeks and then not try and do a feast. It would be torture for us to not try at least to have a feast instead of talking about it for a month. So on the March 22nd, we're going we're gonna to have a celebration. It's going to be a good time. Here's the reading of, of God's word. Leviticus 23 and verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites. Say to them, these are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as a sacred assembly. 
There are six days that you shall work, but on the seventh is a Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live, for it is a Sabbath to the Lord. It's the very words of God. Amen. As you'll see through all of these uh, feasts, that this is a window into something much bigger and larger. So, I want to humbly open up a very, very big topic of the Sabbath. And so I just need your grace uh, to be able to do that. Because in order to do that, I think I'd like to reference pretty much the entire Bible. And so uh, <laughs> I'll be your tour guide and keep your hands and arms inside this vehicle at all times. And if we get separated, let me give you just a little bit of a map of what I'd like to uh, put before you. Number one, I'd like to talk about the tensions with the Sabbath. The problem with the Sabbath that I see uh, developing maybe in our culture. Number two, I'd like to give you a crash course history of some of the, the history of Sabbath in the Hebrew scriptures. And number, th did I say number three? Number three, that was two. Three is I want to talk about what Sabbath could mean today. Okay? The problem, the history, and, and the present. One of the difficulties that I've experienced with the Sabbath is I either find somebody uh, who believes on either side of an extreme. You either have somebody that takes it really, really seriously, or you have somebody that has completely uh, let it vanish and disappear. How did we get to this place? And is that what God had in mind with this theme and this topic of Sabbath? When I first moved to Grand Rapids, among many of the things that I found uh, that were different about my hometown uh, up north and here is the Sabbath is played a little bit differently. I had dinner with a man who uh, sat me down and he said, you know, I started sharing a little bit about my uh, process of wrestling with, uh, you know, the Torah and some of the, the legalism that's there and what I'm trying to figure out. And he said to me, and this is what I remember, he said to me, you know, you don't have to worry about the Sabbath. That's the one thing that the, the, of the Ten Commandments the New Testament kind of does away with. Might as well have nine commandments. I thought, okay, I'd like to see where that's coming from. And I can see where that's coming from. You can read that uh, in the text, right? I mean, once you started studying the life of Jesus, he doesn't make it easier. A cursory reading of the life of Jesus in the gospel, see him kind of... Uh, at least poking the bear. What's the first story that we see of Jesus walking through the field with his disciples and starts to eat uh, the wheat? First question is, who does that? Whose wheat is this? I don't know, we're just eating it. Second question, what does he say in response to the Pharisee? The Pharisee comes to him and says, you're breaking the law. This is a sin. Is it? Well, Jesus doesn't really defend himself. Well, at least he doesn't defend himself the way I would. They say, Jesus, you're breaking the law. And he said, so did David. <laughs> that's, that's not exactly how you get out of trouble, okay? Uh, the, next, uh, the next example, I find John chapter 5, right? He uh, it heals the man at the pool of Bethesda, the crippled man. And he goes walking and leaping and praising God, as the song uh, in my childhood said, right? And the, chapter 5, verse 16, what's it say? They persecuted Jesus for doing work on the Sabbath. And he responds and says, my father is working until now, 
And I am also working. I can see how somebody would read this and say, Jesus has no regard for the Sabbath anymore. But I believe that there's something deeper going on here. And I think that, that, that Jesus is not a Sabbath breaker. I think that he has, he has something bigger in mind. So ask yourself, is what I believe about Sabbath what God had in mind? Did he want us to just sort of forget about it? Of course, on the other side of the extreme, you have someone who really takes it seriously. I have many stories of, of what that looks like. Um, I lived in Jerusalem for a period of time at, at a school, my wife and I, and I experienced a people group who put all of my versions of Sabbath to shame. <laughs> the Sabbath in, in the Jewish world is, is a very, very important thing. There's a fundamental belief, actually, that if all of the, the Jewish people in this world were to actually observe the Sabbath perfectly, it would bring so much peace into this world that the Messiah has to return. And if you believe that, of course, this is going to be such a big deal to you. Repentance has oftentimes become synonymous with keeping the Sabbath. One of the big Jewish figures uh, as a candidate for the Messiah, Rabbi Schneerson, is known of being the Messiah in their mind because he led so many people to repentance and keeping the Sabbath. Now, this has many different ways, shapes, and forms. If you've spent any period of time in Israel, you're familiar with this thing called the Sabbath elevator. Anybody know what the Sabbath elevator is? The Sabbath elevator is a pretty good idea, actually, because if you lived or if your hotel room is on a very high floor, of course, you can't walk up all the floors because that's too much work to do on the Sabbath. But you also aren't allowed to push the button for the elevator. So they've uh, programmed the elevators to stop at every single floor. Because if you happen to be walking by and the door is open, of course you can go in there and, and then, you know, be carried up to your floor. Is that what God had in mind when he was developing the Sabbath, when he put the Sabbath into play? No elevators. Well, before we point our finger at, at our Jewish brothers and sisters... Think about your own life. If you're like me and you grew up in a conservative circle, you have a version of the Sabbath as well. Of course, we as Christians decided to make it onto, onto Sunday. We have the Sunday Sabbath. I grew up with Sabbath tradition. Of course, first comes to mind is, is church shoes, church clothes. I had these special clothes that I had to wear, and it was kind of a genius thing of my parents to do because you also couldn't play in those clothes. And so, also playing on Sabbath kind of is toned down a little bit as well. No baseball in your church shoes. Um, a, but a big thing that, that we kind of fought for in our family was no eating out. You cannot go out to eat after church. And, of course, my grandmother is the biggest Sabbath breaker in our family because she would take me out every single week uh, to the Chinese buffet in, our, in my hometown, China Buffet King. And... Um, and I got to wonder, I mean, is this biblical? I mean, is this what Sabbath is? Is this what God had in mind? Well, I can see how you'd get to this place by reading, you know, the Apostle Paul. 
Ask Apostle Paul, what do you think about the, what do you think about the, the, the clash of the Gentile world and the Jewish world? What should we do? He has a lot of answers for this stuff. Should we keep kosher, Paul? Well, you know, I mean, no food is really unclean. I mean, you just have to be sensitive to people. Uh, and all the bacon lovers in the room are like, yes. Should we be circumcised? Paul, should circumcision be a part of it? Well, God's covenant, you know, is on your heart. His sign is on your heart. It's bigger than that. Okay? Two great pillars of the Jewish tradition uh, down. What about the Sabbath? Should we do the Sabbath or shouldn't we do the Sabbath? And Paul's like, sure. It, it, there isn't a ton of, of, of language to it or writing to it. And it's not that Paul doesn't write about Ten Commandments. I have found nine of the Ten Commandments in his writings. Let the thief no longer steal. Even in uh, Romans 13, he, he rattles off a whole list of, commandment, uh, of the Ten Commandments. But in chapter 14, he says something like, to one man, one day is esteemed above all other days. To another man, all days are alike. Let each of us be convinced in our own mind. If you were to take that verse and apply it to the Sabbath, then of course you'd find yourself saying, I need to be convinced in my own mind. I need to think, what clothes should I wear on the Sabbath? Should I use an elevator or not? Should I go out to eat or not? And so I need to develop this version of it. And I say both of those extremes because I can see how it happened. I just wonder, is that what God had in mind? Is there something bigger, a bigger picture here? And if you're listening to me right now and you're wondering the same thing, I think it's because we know that there is something bigger happening. I think deep down we know that there is something big behind the Sabbath. And maybe we just haven't taken time to articulate that and figure out what it is that's bigger about the Sabbath. So I'd like to take you on a, a, a little tour of the history of the Sabbath through the Hebrew Scriptures. And I think I can do that by uh, showing you three big events. Event number one, creation. Sabbath is first introduced to us in the first two chapters of the Bible. We have this explosive and beautiful section of the Bible in Genesis chapter one where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He then goes on to create in six days everything that is uh, ever been created. And then it says, on the seventh day, this is what I call Sabbath irony. On the seventh day, he created something by not creating something. He, cre he did something by doing nothing. He rested. He created a day of rest. He didn't have to do that. Everything was already created. He created a day of rest. So Sabbath should be in our hearts and minds because it's validated in the first two chapters of the Bible by God actually doing it. So to the person that says, ah, we have nothing to think about, think about that. It's already sowing a seed there. What's going on in this first, you know, section of the Bible? Well, Dr. John Walton in his book, The Lost World of Genesis Chapter 1, has some interesting developments on top of this. He says that we should look at Genesis 1 and 2 as... Um, with the eyes of the ancient Near East. Of course, we do that with every book of the Bible. And some of the things that he thinks are um, really obvious in the ancient Near Eastern world is that you read this creation in six and rest on seven as God making a temple. 
as a deity making a temple, and six puts a, a, an image or a shrine, or in our case, an image bearer, uh, commissions a priest, Adam and Eve, to rule and, and to take care of this temple, and then fills it on the seventh. Part of this uh, language for this comes from, to the fact that he made this day a holy day. This rest has some sort of holiness into it. What does this mean? Does this mean that the first six days were not holy or were unholy? Or what, what does this seventh day that's holy have to do with this? Well, think of, think of the temple, uh, the meaning of a temple. The meaning of a temple is simple. Heaven meets earth. In the Sabbath, God created time and he enters into time. Okay, so God intersects with creation. Heaven meets earth on the Sabbath. Abraham Joshua Heschel said this. He said, the Sabbath is in a way a temple built in time. For God is, heaven is meeting earth in the Sabbath. The Sabbath is how we, we usher in the age to come, he says. We experience heaven in a way. Because God wants to meet on the Sabbath. So in creation, very simply, heaven meets earth. The next event, the Sabbath is, is tied to freedom. The Exodus, another great event in the Hebrew scriptures. We have the children of Israel being rescued from Pharaoh in Egypt. The, the Red Sea parts and they walk across on dry land. What happens next? Of course what happens next? They get hungry. That's what happened to anybody after this, right? And God says, okay, I'm going to provide food for you. And he rains down manna from heaven. But then he says, here's the thing. I'm going to give you twice as much on Friday so that you can have a day off on Saturday where you don't have to go and collect food for yourselves. This is absolute culture shock for these people. Of course, this is before Sinai. This is before their religion. This is before this is part of the Ten Commandments. This is just, this is your new life. Think about it. For a slave that's probably never had a day off before in their life to be able to told that God says to them, I'm not Pharaoh. You're not my slave. I want you to have a day where you can rest. And that day is going to also be built on this tradition of, of heaven meets earth here. When you experience heaven on earth, you get to rest and, have, and, and remember your freedom. That works its way even into the Ten Commandments when, it, when God says, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Remember, you were a slave once, but now you are free. Freedom is attached to the Sabbath, and I think it is attached to the Sabbath a lot more than we're willing to let on. I mean, think about your, your work on the Sabbath, or, or, or not work, I mean, your experience. Has it been an experience of freedom or bondage? And how do we get to a place where we are able to receive it in a way that, that is setting us free like it was meant to be? Because it only gets better from here. As you can see, it's in Leviticus 23, a part of the uh, celebrations of the year. But then also in Leviticus 25, if you flip the page, if you're still there, you can see the Sabbath isn't just a once a week thing. The Sabbath is meant to grow into a septennial thing, uh, every seven years thing. It's called the Sabbath year. And the plot thickens. What's the Sabbath year? In Hebrew, it's called Shemitah. Shemitah means to release. 
And the rules of this year are beautiful. If somebody owes you a debt on this year, you let it go. You release. If you have a slave and somebody that's obligated to serve in your home, you open the door and you say, I'm letting you go. You're released. If you have some land that you've been working as a farmer, of course, you look at the land and God says, I want you to let it go. Just release, release this. And this is the grace of God because in the seventh day uh, uh, rhythm, you're seeing God is not Pharaoh. But in the seventh year rhythm, you're seeing that you are not Pharaoh. Pharaoh would keep the slave. Pharaoh would keep the debt. It's protection. Six years, you learn how to grow crops and you learn how to provide for yourself. What if you were to say to yourself, I don't need God, I can do this. Look at this, I can, I can provide food for my family. God says, no, 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 no. You're not the Pharaoh of even the land. Let it rest. Let it go. What a beautiful idea. The Sabbath. Heaven meets earth. Freedom. Shemitah. And it gets better. The seven-year cycle counted in seven. So seven, seven years. You get 49 years. And at the 49th year, the 50th year, you are to blow a trumpet that in Hebrew is called Yovel, and we translate it Jubilee. So the trumpet of Jubilee is blown, and you get this year of Jubilee. What's different about the year of Jubilee? Well, it has all the same elements as the letting go of the debts, the letting go of the slave, the letting the land rest. And if you have land that you've acquired through a purchase of somebody else's land, you give it back. That's really good news. Because in the ancient times, if you were to have to sell your land, you would be in a very difficult position. You would have to have been in a very bad place because the land is your family. The land is your family's bound. It was given to you. The land that you have is your legacy. It's your children's, like it's your, it's your, your retirement. It's a part of your family. And if you were to give that up, you must have been in a bad place. And so when the horn of Jubilee blows, you get a second chance. The God of the Sabbath is a God of heaven meeting earth, a God of freedom, a God of letting things go, and a God of second chances. This is a very important concept. The third event only emphasizes this. Creation, exodus, and exile. In Leviticus 26, you continue to read and see. God says, if you choose not to uh, observe the Sabbath and observe this Sabbath year and jubilee, then what I'm gonna do to you is everything in reverse that you haven't done, right? I'm gonna do everything. Uh, if you do not allow your slaves to go, I'm gonna make you a slave. If you will not allow, uh, look out for the poor, I'm gonna make you the poor. If you do not look after the widow or the orphan, I'll make your wife a widow and your children's orphan. If you do not let the land rest, I will remove you from the land and I will give it its rest. Now this is just adding to how important this is to God. And, and you have to ask yourself, did this ever happen? Did God ever follow through with this? Well, the prophet Jeremiah specifically says so. In 29 and in 26, you have neglected God's Sabbaths. 
I found a very succinct verse in Second Chronicles I'll read to you. Second Chronicles 36 talks about the, um, the recap of Babylon coming in and, and, and taking everybody uh, captive in Israel. Talking of King Nebuchadnezzar, he carried the exiles into Babylon, those who escaped from the sword when they became servants. They became slaves to him and to his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. Verse 21, then the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. The entire time of desolation, the land rested until 70 years were completed in the fulfillment of the word of the Lord by the prophet Jeremiah. God means business. And my, my point of bringing all three of these events to the table this morning is, is doesn't this seem like a very substantial theme? Doesn't the magnitude of, of, of this seem like it's something that should be uh, considered very important? How did we get from this place of this being so important to something that has become so petty at times? Well, to conclude, I'd like to just offer you a perspective that I have on what this could mean today. And it may be different than yours. But just consider this. What if all of these themes and all of these roads that I've just laid out of jubilee, of, of Shemitah, of freedom, and of God intersecting with creation, heaven on earth, what if all of these themes were not just arbitrary themes, but they were there to point towards somebody? It's when we start to look at Jesus... All of these things seem to intersect in one person. 500 years after the exile, we, re we see Jesus on the Sabbath standing up and reading from Isaiah 61, probably the most clear articulation of Jubilee in the entire Bible. And what does he say? The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor to restore sight to the blind, to set the captive free, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to proclaim the year, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Could it be that Jesus didn't do away with the Sabbath, but that Jesus actually unleashes the Sabbath? Could it be that Jesus isn't a Sabbath breaker, but he's a Sabbath bringer? What if he's looking around and saying, this is not what God had in mind. It's much, much bigger than this. Of course he's healing people. Of course he's bringing food to crowds. Of course he's, he's raising people to life. Of course he's sticking up for the marginalized and the exposed. Of course he's bringing jubilee. He's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. He proclaims this on that day in Luke chapter 4, but he accomplishes this in his death and resurrection. Jesus launches Sabbath into a greater place than it ever was. Jesus doesn't have a low view of Sabbath. He has a high view. And it is much it, it, it's as proportionate as it was in the Hebrew Scriptures and far beyond. 
Let me explain. Consider, this, consider the, the theme of the temple and how Jesus treats the theme of the temple in light of the Sabbath as well. Because both of those things are, as I said, heaven meeting earth. So how does Jesus treat the temple? He's not anti-temple. Jesus is pro-temple. He walks into the temple and he says, you have shrunken this down into something that it was never supposed to be. He sees people uh, exploiting the poor. and He tips over the tables and says, no, 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 this is not how it's supposed to be. Jesus tips the tables over of the Sabbath as well. When he says, I am going to tear down the temple and rebuild it, he unleashes the temple into all of us. We know this. Of course, when somebody asks you, do you believe in the temple? Of course I believe in the temple. We are the temple. He is our sacrifice. And of course, I believe in the Sabbath. As it is fulfilled in Christ Jesus, the rest that Jesus brings is still rest from work. The work that we abstain from is much deeper than physical work. The work that we abstain from is the work of our salvation. The work that we take a rest from and say, I'm not gonna do this, is I am not going to work for my salvation. I'm not going to work for my, to make my place at God's table. Christ worked really hard for that. And he says to each and every single one of us, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you the rest. I will give you rest for your soul. I'm going to give you a perpetual rest, a year of the Lord's favor that lives within you and that you celebrate every single day by receiving my rest. Have you received it? Have you received the rest that Jesus provides all of us? Or are you still working for uh, God's approval? Are you still working for your salvation? Time to take a Sabbath, people. It's time to let go. It's time to receive the second chance. Hebrews chapter three and four um, is an exhortation to this very same thing. Chapter three, verse 13 says, there's still, uh, while today is still called today, Strive to enter into the rest. See, they pick up on that Sabbath irony a little bit. Strive to enter into the rest, okay? If you're gonna strive for something, strive to enter in the rest while today is still called today. And I like that verse because it's telling us that you can have this not just on one day, not just on another day. You can have this every day that's called today. You can have the rest that the Lord provides So have you received it? Practically speaking, I'll ask the band to return. Reveal yourselves. Uh, if the band's up here, it keeps me accountable to land the plane. Uh, practically speaking, here's some ideas that I have for us to, um, to kind of work this into our life. How do, you, how do you work this into your life? Well, one of the ways that we can work uh, the Sabbath that Jesus gives us into our life is through celebration. What if for Lent, you were to have a special dinner once a week and you were to say to your family, we're celebrating today. We're celebrating the rest that Jesus has given to us. We're celebrating the freedom that we have in Christ. We're celebrating the, the body and the blood of Christ. Husbands, was the last time 
in a celebration that you passed out the body and the blood of Christ to your family and said, let's celebrate. Let's receive what Jesus has done and celebrate it. When's the last time that, you know, you were out with your friends and you raised a glass, you stood up and said, I want to propose a toast. Not these says celebration more than a toast. And you said, I want to raise a glass to the work of Christ who would do anything to set us free, not just physically, but spiritually in the deepest possible way. Celebrate. And also, number two, what if you were to do what Jesus did and on the Sabbath or, or to observe your Sabbath, you were to unleash it into your sphere of influence? What if you were to ask you know, yourself, how can I bring the year of the Lord's favor into my family and into the people that are around me? How can I confirm what I believe about this rest of my soul that Jesus has given to me uh, out loud? How will your neighbor know that you believe in the God of Shemitah, the God that releases debts, if you can't even forgive them for breaking the weed whacker last year? How can, how can your family know that you believe in a God that forgives debts if you're still holding that $20 over them that you lent them 10 years ago? Let's find small ways to confirm that we believe in a God who releases debts, money debts, but even also uh, relational debts. Who has wronged you that you think that they owe you now? What if we became a people who say, I'm letting it go? What if we had some creative people in the room who make videos or who are photographers or who are musicians? What if you saw your creativity as a way to, to proclaim Jubilee into this world? What if you made a painting or took a picture and that restored sight to the blind? What if you wrote a song that bound up the brokenhearted and, and did some healing deep down inside of someone? You can release Jubilee into your sphere of influence. So consider celebrating the rest of God and spreading and unleashing it into your life. Please pray with me and evaluate. Jesus, we, uh, we repent for trying to work for our place at your table. We repent for trying to add to your work that you uh, worked so hard to accomplish. We repent for uh, not believing that we are truly brought into your family. We have nothing to add to your work. We only can celebrate and receive it. Thank you. Thank you for the perpetual Sabbath rest that you put inside of us all. Give us the courage to be able to do what you did and unleash Jubilee into our uh, world and into our workplace and family and life. Give us the ability to be able to let go, to let go of control, to let go of the things that we think we have uh, autonomy for, for, that we are dependent upon you and we're just gonna let go and trust you. Help us to be the Shabbat Shalom that you want us to be.
Before we go, receive the blessing of the Lord, my friends. The Lord will bless you and keep you. He'll make his face to shine upon you and look at you with favor. The Lord will make his face to shine upon you and give you his peace. Never been more happy to say Shabbat Shalom. Have a great week.